Hello, sports fans, and welcome to another edition of Yesterday Sports on the Sports History Network. And make sure to check out sportshistorynetwork.com slash giveaways. I have two signed books I'm giving away. One is titled No Nonsense Old School Weight Training, and the other is Reliving 1970s Old School Football. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hello once again, sports fans, and welcome back to this latest edition of the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast, where we discuss the best of sports from back in the day. I'm your host, Dana Augusta, and I'm grateful each and every one of you have taken time out of your busy day to give us a listen. And just a reminder, don't forget to subscribe to the show wherever you hear us. It helps us out a lot. In this episode of the program, we're going to take a trip back to 1970, when the AFL-NFL merger took effect which was the birth of the modern NFL. We'll take a look at that season with, which was full of twists and turns and its climax was Super Bowl V, which was decided in the final seconds, yet ironically was one of the most forgettable Super Bowls. Later in the program, we're gonna send shout outs to two of eight quarterbacks that this week in sports history passed for seven touchdowns in one game. Two Hall of Fame players that had their day of days. And of course, we have our home field apparel top five moments that celebrated anniversaries this past week, including a winning streak that came to an end, a legendary fantastic finish in the NFL, and a team in Canada that accomplished something that hasn't been done before and will never happen again. So we have a lot going on this week in the show, so sit back, pump up the volume, and enjoy the show. You are strolling through the sports memory lane via the Historically Speaking Sports podcast, which is a proud member of the Sports History Network. We here at the Sports History Network are thrilled to work with our sponsors and partners. With their support, we are able to produce great content for you. The other cool thing is, most of our sponsors and partners offer discounts to pass along to our fans. So if you go to the website today, you'll find row one, Royal Retros, Play Classic, Thrive Fantasy, and Mega Seats. With Row 1, you can save up to 15% in the gallery with the code SHN. The Row 1 gallery includes over 5,200 reproduced sports history prints on a variety of sizes, including wood, metal, canvas, acrylic, or poster paper. The Row 1 shop has thousands more unique items with retro and historical designs dating back to 1876, including t-shirts, long-sleeve shirts, phone cases, mugs, blankets, pillows, towels, as well as shower curtains. Royal Retros is the king of throwbacks. They've got jerseys, shirts, hats, collectibles, and more from the defunct leagues and the teams in those leagues. Play Classic has your sports simulation board games. Just use the code SHN 
to save 10% off your first order. Thrive Fantasy is a daily fantasy sports and esports app for player props. Use the promo code SHN for instant 100% match up to $100. And Mega Seats are tickets with no fees. You can save up to 10% with the code SHN. So there you have it. When you check out the Sponsors and Deals tabs on the Sports History Network website, you'll find plenty of deals to save you some dough. Check it out today! Hello, welcome back to the program. Once again, I'm your host, Dana Augusta, and you're locked into the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast, a proud member of the Sports History Network. 52 years ago, the NFL went through a dramatic landscape change as teams from the American Football League became members of the NFL and, of course, the AFL-NFL merger. With this combination of the two leagues, the NFL exploded to 26 teams. 16 came from the well-established NFL and 10 of which had its roots in the AFL, which caused a problem. The league had to be realigned and three teams that came from the NFL would have to transfer to the newly formed AFC, which was formed primarily from teams from the AFL. With a bonus of a million dollars, the Colts, Steelers, and Browns would be moved to the AFC to balance the league. In addition to this, another change that came to the league would be the, and would be immediate, an immediate success would be the premiere of Monday Night Football. On September 21, 1970, ABC would broadcast the very first Monday Night Football game, and it would be a magical night as well as a thrilling ball game between two pro football heavyweights. The New York Jets, who had won Super Bowl III just two seasons earlier and was led by Hall of Famers Joe Namath and Don Maynard, traveled to Cleveland Municipal Stadium to face the Browns, who was in the NFL Championship game the season before, losing to Minnesota. The game was closely contested in the first half with the Browns leading 14-7. The second half started with a bang thanks to former New York Giants receiver Homer Jones. ABC's Keith Jackson with the call. But the Jets are behind on the scoreboard by a score of 14-7. And the ball game for the second half is underway as Jim Turner kicks off. It goes to Homer Jones. Homer takes it at the six-yard line for the Cleveland Browns and he breaks it in the open. The Jets would rally in the second half as Namath would get hot and would trim the Browns' lead to 24-21 late in the fourth quarter. With the, with the Jets attempting to drive for the go-ahead score, the Browns would put the game out of reach. First down, New York at their own 18-yard line, 47 seconds to play. The Browns' lead 24-21 before more than 85,000 people. Snyder almost gets Namath. The pass is intercepted! It is intercepted by number 52, Billy Andrews. Touchdown and no penalty flags on the field. You can't. There's a depressed Joe Maynard. The Browns would win 31-21 in the debut of Monday Night Football. 
and has become a musty television event for every sports fan ever since. That was the first time the Browns and Jets had ever played one another, and that was one of the exciting aspects of the new merger, as teams that never played one another in the regular season would now become rivals. One such division was the newly created AFC Central, which included the Browns, Steelers, Oilers, and Bengals. Two of the four, the Steelers and Browns, was from the established NFL, while the Bengals and Oilers were part of the AFL. The Steelers would start the season with a battle of quarterbacks between Terry Hanratty and number one overall pick from Louisiana Tech, Terry Bradshaw. Meanwhile, the yearly battle of Ohio would begin as the Browns and Bengals would square off twice a year in this new NFL. The Browns were favored to run away with the division and started off strong while the Bengals, coached by Paul Brown, who coached, the Cle who coached Cleveland to four All-American Football Conference Championships and three NFL Championships, started 1-6 yet quickly turned it around, winning their last seven games of the season. One of those was against his former Browns team, which Paul Brown said it was his greatest victory as head coach. With their strong finish, the Bengals would become the first expansion team to win a division title. Over in the new NFC Central, defense was the name of the game with the Packers, Vikings, Lions, and Bears. That season, the division known as the Black and Blue Division came down to the Minnesota Vikings and the surprising Detroit Lions. The Lions had a musical chairs game going on at quarterback all season long between veteran Bill Munson and rookie scrambler Greg Landry. The real contributors was the, was the Lions defense, led by defensive back Lem Barney and offensive stars, running back Mel Farr and Hall of Fame tight end Charlie Sanders. Those assets were good enough for 10 wins for the Lions and the first ever NFC wildcard. Yet their purple nemesis from Minnesota was two games better than the Lions in the standings. With the offense that was without quarterback Joe Cap that led the Vikings to the Super Bowl the season before, more on him in a minute. There was also the awesome defense led by the Purple People Eaters Jim Marshall, Alan Page, Carl Eller, and Gary Larson, allowing just 143 points for the whole season and gave them their 12-2 record the best in the NFC. Over in the AFC West, the Chiefs, Raiders, Chargers, and Broncos division was the only one that was remained untouched after the merger. These four were together doing the entirety of the AFL. The story of the NFL that season was in Oakland, supplied by 43-year-old George Blanda and his bottomless bag of last-second miracles. Early in the season, replacing an injured Daryl LaMonica, Blanda came in at quarterback and rallied the Raiders past the Bradshaw-led Steelers, then threw a last-second touchdown pass against the Broncos in Denver. Later, Father Time produced another last-second field goal against the divisional rival Chargers and a 48-yard field goal to get a tie with the defending Super Bowl champion Kansas City Chiefs. Yet their game with the Browns in Oakland, Blanda again replaced an injured LaMonica and tossed a late touchdown pass to Warren Wells to tie the game. And after interception by defensive back Kent McLuhan, Blanda and the Raiders were poised for another last-second field goal. This one from 53 yards away as described by local radio announcer Bill King. Seven seconds to go. They're going to try a field goal from 53 yards. The odds against this must be about 76 million to a half. Well, George did it from 48 last week with maybe three feet to spare. Left hash mark. Stabler will hold. Stabler not as experienced holding as LaMonica. Fourth down. Here it is. Snap. Spotted. It's kicked. That's got a chance. 
That is good. It's good. Holy Toledo. The place has gone wild. I don't believe it. I don't believe it. The Oakland Raiders, 23. The Cleveland Browns, 20. George Blanda has just been elected king of the world. After a loss to the Lions on Thanksgiving Day, the Raiders found themselves behind again, this time at Snowy Shea Stadium, facing the New York Jets. The Jets leading 13-7 late in the game, but this time, it was Dow LaMonica getting into the act on the final play of regulation. Once again, Bill King. The Raiders get the ball on the 32 or 33. Holy Toledo, one more shot they have. Well, this is stringing it right to the end. They may not have another one. It's 13-7 New York. Eight seconds to go. LaMonica comes in. Wells is back in for Boletnikov. He's to the left. Sherman to the right. Loose quarterback coverage. They're way off. They don't want to give up the bomb. LaMonica's back. He looks. He's throwing deep for Wells in traffic. It's better around. Wells catches the ball. Wells has caught the ball. Wells has caught the touchdown. And it's time. 3 of them were all over Wells. They batted them all up in the air. Wells caught it, falling down. The I don't the believe it. One second left, the conversion to be tied. This is ridiculous. This is utterly ridiculous. The Raiders had a chance to win it if Brenda can check the conversion. Spotted. Checked. It is good. The game is over, and the Oakland Raiders have come out of nowhere, out of absolute utter and certain defeat, to defeat the New York Jets, and the final scoreboard shows the Raiders 14, the Jets 13. One week later, the Raiders were home facing their arch-rival Chiefs, and with the division title on the line, no miracles were needed, as the Raiders dominated the Chiefs 20-6 as they, didn't, they not only claimed the division title, but also eliminated the Chiefs from the playoffs. Over in the new NFC West, which featured the Rams, Falcons, Saints, and 49ers, the play of the year was supplied by the New Orleans Saints and Saints kicker Tom Dempsey. With the Saints trailing 17-15 at Tulane Stadium, they faced the Detroit Lions. Dempsey, who was born with a deformed right hand and foot, was called in to try a thin NFL record 63-yard field goal. Saints fans that were in the stadium and watching on television will always remember where they were and what they were doing as CBS play-by-play -play man Don Quiggy described it. He's tying a 63-yard field goal. Not only will uh, Tom Dempsey hits this one, he's got a very slight win at his back. He'll set a National Football League record in addition to winning the game. I don't believe this. It's good! I don't believe it! The field goal attempt was good from 63 yards away! It's incredible! Tulane Stadium has gone wild! A 63-yard field goal! While Dempsey supplied the surprise play of the season, the San Francisco 49ers was the surprise team of the year. Behind veteran quarterback John Brody and receivers Dick Witcher and Gene Washington, the 49ers shot past the struggling Rams and vaulted into first place and winning the division. Over in the NFC East, this, this division in 1970 was dominated by running backs. Run of, one of them was Ron Johnson of the Giants. 
He and his blue shoes kept the Giants in contention as he became the first New York runner to gain 1,000 yards in the season. The Cardinals was also in contention thanks to MacArthur Lane and John Gilliam, and a defense that recorded three straight shutouts that included a 38-0 win over Dallas at the Cotton Bowl on Monday night. Yet the Cowboys, who struggled in the early part of the season, being shut up by the Cardinals and losing to the Vikings 52-14 in Bloomington, rallied behind the pass catching of Bob Hayes and the running of rookie running back Dwayne Thomas, and won the NFC East going away. While the NFC East was the domain of running backs, the AFC East would be headlined by quarterbacks. The Patriots would be led that season by last season's Super Bowl quarterback Joe Cap. Cap, who was traded to Boston from Minnesota, was the first quarterback in Super Bowl history to be traded the year after leading his team to a Super Bowl. Cap couldn't bring his rugged magic to New England as the Patriots finished with the league worst 2-12 record and the top pick in the 1971 draft, which became Jim Plunkett. The Miami Dolphins rose from the ranks of expansion on the arm of Bob Greasy and first-year Dolphin head coach Don Shula. That combo made the Dolphins a surprise team in the AFC with a wildcard finish at 10-4. Yet the class of the division was the Baltimore Colts led by Hall of Famer John Unitas. Baltimore were more than just Unitas. Their defense scored almost as much as the offense, led by Bubba Smith, Lee May, Mike Curtis, and Rick Volk. The Colts steamed through the regular season and was poised to return to Miami for Super Bowl V. As the playoffs began, the Colts were the favorite to get back to the Super Bowl, and they looked every bit the favorite, as they blanked Paul Brown and the Bengals 17-0 in Baltimore. In the other AFC Divisional game, the Raiders had, little bit of the, had a, a little bit of a tougher time with the Dolphins in rainy and wet Oakland. The Raiders once again fell behind but rallied behind a pair of LaMonica touchdowns, including a 73-yard touchdown pass to Rod Sherman. The Raiders would put the, put the game on ice as Willie Brown would intercept a Bob Greasy pass for a pick six. Over in the NFC, the Cowboys and Lions playoff game was a defensive struggle to say the least. It was, and still is, the lowest scoring NFL postseason game ever as the Cowboys claimed a 5-0 win in advance to the first ever NFC title game against the Cinderella 49ers. John Brody led the Niners to an upset of the Vikings 17-14 in Frigid, Minnesota to face the Cowboys. And in the NFC Championship game, the Cowboys ended the 49ers' magical season as well as closed down legendary Kizar Stadium in San Francisco, winning 17-10 as Thomas rushed for 143 yards and a touchdown. Over in the AFC, the championship game between the Colts and the Raiders would go down in history as the duel in the dust. A late touchdown pass from Unitas to Ray Perkins gave the Colts a 27-17 win and advanced the advanced Baltimore back to Miami for Super Bowl V. That year's Super Bowl was the climactic conclusion of the most competitive season in NFL history, and the game was just, game was just as competitive, although at times it was not aesthetically pleasing, as both teams combined for 11 turnovers and 14 penalties, but it came down to the final seconds. Rookie kicker Jim O'Brien ended the season with a 32-yard field goal to give the Colts their first Super Bowl win, a 16-13 win over the Dallas Cowboys. 1970 was the birth of the modern NFL, and it saw the creation of new divisions, new rivalries, new stars that would dominate the next decade. 
and a new show on Monday night that would be a staple of television for the next 50 plus years. So that was our main event this week, and coming up will be the Home Field Apparel Top 5. The top five events that celebrated anniversaries this past week, including a coach that reached an almost impossible milestone, the end of a college football streak, and one of the most memorable plays in NFL history. Stay tuned. We here at the Sports History Network proudly partner with 26 podcasts, all revolving around the history of sports. But did you know that many of our hosts were sports history authors way before they started their shows? It's true. We've got Joe Ziemba, host of When Football Was Football. Joe Zagurski, host of Pro Football in the 1970s. Mark Morthier, host of Yesterday Sports. Tommy Phillips, host of Lombardi Memories. And Scott Adamson, co-host of From the 55-Yard Line. All these authors have many books for you to choose from. To check them out, go to our website at sportshistorynetwork.com slash sportshistorybooks. Pick up your copy today. Soundtrack provided by Kevin McLeod of filmmusic.io. Hello, sports fans, and welcome back to the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast, where we focus on the best of sports from back in the day. And just to remind everyone out there, you could follow us on Twitter at historicallysp 2 to get your daily dose of sports history. And in addition to that, you could also drop us a line or two at historically.speaking.sports at gmail.com. So right now it is time for the Home Field Apparel Top 5. And Home Field Apparel is the sponsor of our episode Top 5, where we count down the five biggest historic moments of the world of sports that are celebrating anniversaries this past week. And it's brought to you by Home Field Apparel. In college football, the season is starting to wind down and heading into bowl season. And the best way to show off your school spirit when you attend your team's games or watch them wherever is to wear a shirt or hoodie from Home Field Apparel. They have a wide range of styles for your favorite team with what I call old school logos. And not only to make you stand out in the crowd, but also show that everyone around you that you are a true fan of that team. They have shirts that represent close to 200 schools and adding more and more each and every day. And on the website, you can hit the rewards button located at the bottom of the screen and get 20% off of your next purchase. So give Home Field Apparel a, a try as you watch your team win their bowl game. That's Home Field Apparel where they study your school's history, traditions, and legacies to create thoughtful and premium apparel. A must-have for your next tailgate. So, once again, Home Field Apparel where they are fond of saying, wear one for the team. This week's countdown will highlight events that took place between the dates of November the 13th and November 19th in sports history. So, without further delay, here's the Home Field Apparel Top 5. Number 5. A team from Baltimore wins the Great Cup. Now, on November 19, 1995, the Baltimore Stallions, led by Tracy Ham, defeated the Calgary Stampeders 37-20 in the 83rd Great Cup in Taylor Field in Saskatchewan. The win made the Stallions the first and only American-based team to win the equivalent of the Canadian Super Bowl. This was the high mark of the Canadian expansion into the United States, which featured teams such as the Shreveport Pirates, Sacramento Gold Miners, Las Vegas Posse, Birmingham Barracudas, Memphis Mad Dogs, and later the San Antonio Texans. The experiment only lasted three seasons as poor attendance was its downfall. Number 4. 
Sandy Koufax announces his retirement. The Los Angeles Dodgers Hall of Fame pitcher Sandy Koufax, considered one of the greatest pitchers ever, announced his retirement from baseball on November 18, 1966 due to chronic arm injuries. After 12 seasons in the majors, he had a 165-87 record with a 276 ERA and two, with 2,396 strikeouts and 137 complete games and 40 of them shutouts. Koufax threw at least one no-hitter every season from 1962 through 1965. He led the Dodgers to the 1959, 1963, and 1965 World Series championships. Number three, the miracle at the Meadowlands. The game was pretty much over. On November 19, 1978, the New York Giants was hosting longtime rival Philadelphia Eagles at Giants Stadium in East Rutherford, New Jersey. The Giants were holding a 17-3 lead late in the fourth quarter and all they had to do was run out the clock. Yet things took a bizarre twist. Giants quarterback Joe Pasarczyk botched the handoff to fullback Larry Zonka and fumbled it. Eagles defensive back Herman Edwards saw the ball, picked it up, and rumbled 26 yards for the game-winning score. Fans at Giants Stadium was in complete shock as the Eagles snatched victory out of the hands of defeat and claimed a 1917 win. A win that would catapult them to the playoffs in 1978. Number 2. Don Shula passes George Hallis on the all-time win list. In a regular season game on November 14, 1993, Don Shula passed Hall of Fame coach George Hallis, becoming the NFL's all-time winningest coach. At Veterans Stadium in Philadelphia, Coach Shula, coaching the Miami Dolphins, started his coaching career with the Baltimore Colts in 1963 and claimed a 1914 win over the Eagles, earning him his 325th career win as an NFL coach. He would coach the coach for seven seasons and lead them to Super Bowl III after the 1968 season. In 1970, he became coach of the Miami Dolphins, where he would lead the, where he would be head man there for 26 seasons, and along the way, lead the Dolphins to five Super Bowl appearances and two World Championships. Ironically, the the quarterback for the Dolphins that day was Doug Peterson, who would later go on to lead the Eagles to the to their only Super Bowl championship a de- couple of decades later. And finally, the number one event that took place on the dates of November 13th and November 19th, and that is Notre Dame ending Oklahoma's 47-game winning streak. It seemed like Notre Dame has a tendency to breaking people's streaks. And in football, they did it in basketball with UCLA, and they also did it in football going back to November 16th, 1957. The Fighting Irish, led by head coach Terry Brennan, upset the favorite Oklahoma Sooners 7-0 in Norman, ending the Sooners' 47-game winning streak. The longest winning streak in college football history, and ironically, the Sooners' last loss before the streak began was a loss to Notre Dame in 1953. The winning streak began after that loss and with a tie with Pitt. The Sooners would win eight straight in 1953 and ending the season with the Orange Bowl victory against the Maryland Terrapins. Oklahoma will go 10-0 in 1954, 11-0 in 1955, which included a national championship. The streak continued into 1956 as the Sooners again went undefeated, 10, undefeated 10-0, including a 40-0 route of Notre Dame. 
By the start of the 1957 season, the Sooners, coached by Bud Wilkinson, had won 40 games and had started the season 7-0 before beating the Irish at Norman. The 47-game winning streak is the longest in college football history and has never been seriously threatened since. During the streak, the Sooners recorded 23 shutouts and outscored their opponents 16-20-269. And that was this week's Top 5 Events in sports history and coming up next is this week's shout out and we're going to be sending a shout out to two hall of fame quarterbacks that are among just a handful of signal callers to accomplish an incredible single game feat more on that in a minute hey there football fans this is ross the host of the pigskin tales podcast i just need a few moments of your time to talk about the host of the pigskin dispatch podcast darren hayes He's expanded the pig pen to search out information on the history of all team sports. It's a quest to find out about the competitors, teams, and places chronicled throughout athletic history through the uniforms and gear the participants used and wore. And he is taking you, the listener, with him on this educational journey to preserve sports history on the Sports Jersey Dispatch, found here on the Sports History Network. His newest podcast, called Jersey Dispatch, is all based on the jerseys that all the greats used to wear. You can find Darren Hayes and the Pigskin Dispatch podcast, as well as Jersey Dispatch, on your favorite podcast provider multiple times each week. So remember that, Darren Hayes, the host of the Pigskin Dispatch and Jersey Dispatch podcast. It's found right here on the Sports History Network. And we're back and we're going to close out the show with what we call the shout out. And this episode, we're going to be sending a shout out to two quarterbacks, George Blanda and Sid Luckman. This past week in sports history, these two Hall of Famers tossed their record seven touchdown passes in a single game a record which has been equaled six other times by both Hall of Famers and some that may not reach Canton, but for one afternoon caught lightning in a bottle. And Sid Luckman was the first. On November 14, 1943, facing the New York Giants, Luckman led the Bears to a 56-7 win. Luckman would throw two scoring tosses in the first quarter, including a 31-yard strike to Connie McBerry. After throwing one more in the second quarter, the Bears and Luckman put the game away in the third with a back-breaking 62-yard score to Harry Clark. In the fourth quarter, Luckman would have two more touchdown passes, a three-yarder to George Wilson and another 40-yard strike to Hampton Poole. In that game, Luckman would go 21 of 32 for 433 yards, seven touchdowns, and one interception. George Blander would get into the act 18 years later as the quarterback of the Houston Oilers of the AFL. On November 19, 1961 at Houston's Jefferson Stadium, the Oilers demolished the New York Titans 49-13. In that game, Blander went 20-32 of for 418 yards and 7 touchdowns with 1 interception. Blanda passed for three touchdown passes in the first quarter, including two to former Heisman Trophy winner and LSU icon Billy Cannon, one of them for 78 yards. In the second quarter, it was more the same as Blanda found Billy Groman in, in his, for his fourth, 
stretching for 66 yards. And then right before the half, Blanda found Cannon making the score 35-6 at intermission. Two more touchdowns to Groman in the second half ended Blanda's remarkable day with his seventh scoring touchdown. Others that passed for seven in a game includes Adrian Burke of the Philadelphia Eagles who seven scoring tosses against the Redskins on, the, on October 17, 1954, claimed a 49-21 win at Griffith Stadium in D.C. On October 28, 1962, Y.A. Tittle passed the Giants to a 49-34 win over Washington at Yankee Stadium. And seven seasons later, on September 28, 1969, Minnesota Vikings quarterback Joe Cap had his moment in the zone, passing the Vikings past the defending NFL champion Baltimore Colts 52-14 in Bloomington. More recently, Peyton Manning, playing for the Broncos, posted his seventh touchdown afternoon on September 5th, 2013, in a 49-27 win over the Baltimore Ravens in Denver. Nick Foles, before leading the Eagles to a Super Bowl win, became the seventh player to toss seven in a game. On November 3rd, 2013, Foles led the Eagles to a 49-20 win over the Raiders in Oakland. And the most recent quarterback to pass for seven in the game is future Hall of Famer Drew Brees of the Saints. On November 1st, 2015, Brees passed the Saints, passed the New York Giants 52-49 in the Superdome. And that will do it for this edition of the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast. And if you like what you hear here, please don't forget to subscribe to this podcast. And please follow me on Twitter at HistoricallySP2. And also, you could drop me a line at Historically.Speaking.Sports at gmail.com. And until next time, I'm your host, Dana Augusta, saying thank you for listening, and I'll talk to you soon. Hey there, sports history fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. Each week, the official Football Learning Academy podcast will take you deep into the history of pro football through interviews with players, coaches, or administrators in the NFL, as well as interviews with Pro Football Hall of Fame selectors, authors, and historians. You'll learn how the game evolved and important moments that shaped the sport into what it is today. And don't miss the Pro Football History Nugget of the Week. Listen to the official Football Learning Academy podcast on the Sports History Network. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.